Welcome to The World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues of the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the challenges we face and what society needs to do to help solve them. As the world grapples with climate change and strives to meet pledges to reduce global emissions, one of the potential solutions on the table involves using land through schemes such as reforestation to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But how does this carbon dioxide removal, or CDR, actually work? What would the implications be of this approach for individuals and societies across the planet? And can planting trees really offset the amount of emissions being created by the way we live today? Or are we being sold a solution that is unlikely to live up to its promises? My name is Julie Weldon, and in this episode, brought to you by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London, we're going to explore some of these questions and more with researcher Ol Perkins. Ol, who has just completed a PhD and is a global scale land system modeler, was the lead author on a recent paper that looked at the feasibility of land-based carbon dioxide removal and some of the socio-cultural, environmental and institutional factors that it seems have been overlooked to date by experts and policymakers. Welcome all to the world we got this podcast. I'd like to start by asking you to outline why land use is so important in climate change, both in terms of contributing to global emissions and to potentially helping offset them. Great question to start. So land use contributes about 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So that comes from a combination of nitrogen fertilisers, methane from livestock and fires from deforestation fires for land clearance. So it's an important source of greenhouse gas emissions. The second thing to say is that the land system is probably the most affected part of our economies in terms of climate change impacts. So that's things like water stress and drought can obviously have a huge impact on agricultural productivity and can lead to sort of failed harvests and food insecurity and so forth. And so agriculture and the land system and forestry are really vulnerable to climate change. And so this is a really important climate change adaptation and resilience question. And, and the, the land system is more broadly facing a wide range of environmental challenges beyond just climate change. So we have a biodiversity crisis driven both by deforestation and land conversion, but also very intensive land use, uh, overuse of insecticides and fertilisers. And, and also land use is the biggest extractor of freshwater through irrigation for agriculture, and that's increasingly placing a strain on global water resources. So that is a system facing multiple challenges on multiple fronts. But in addition to that, there is this call, which many of the listeners are probably aware of, to use the land to withdraw CO2, carbon dioxide, from the atmosphere in something called carbon dioxide removal. And that is employed in a wide range of, of contexts to cancel out emissions that are very difficult to de to remove or to decarbonize. So a classic example is something like steel production that is very costly and very difficult to decarbonize. And so the idea is that we would use the land system 
to cancel out those hard to abate or sometimes called residual emissions. Um, so really what, what carbon dioxide removal is doing is putting the net in net zero. So when, when we reach net zero, we will still have a small amount of emissions that needs to be cancelled out through land-based removals. Can you explain more about what carbon dioxide removal actually is? It comes in many, many uh, shapes and sizes. On the one hand, you've got very technological types of carbon dioxide removal or CDR, uh, such as direct air capture, which is a, basically a kind of engineering solution where you basically pump air through a kind of sticky resin that reacts with the carbon dioxide in the air and pulls it out directly. So that is something that's built into our assumptions about how we decarbonize the economy. But the problem is, is it's very energy intensive because there's only 400 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. Obviously, that number is going up at the moment. Um, but if you think about 400 parts per million, it's quite difficult then or quite expensive or you have to pump a lot of air through in order to withdraw meaningful amounts of, of CO2 from the atmosphere. So you have these other solutions which are maybe cheaper and perhaps that's why they're attractive to, to governments thinking about how to decarbonise and that's things like reforestation tree planting. You also have like natural habitat restoration. So here in the UK, we have a lot of peat, which is a very rich carbon source, uh, a type of soil where you don't have breakdown of organic matter. And you, by restoring these kind of environments, you can sequester a lot of carbon in vegetation and, and soil. Another kind of really big form of, of carbon dioxide removal is bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So the idea there is you produce some kind of biomass that is then burned in a power plant and that can be in kind of like dedicated crops or better still residues from agricultural production. And then you then burn it, produce some electricity and capture the carbon at source. So the idea is that you're, you're pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere into vegetation. You're then capturing that and storing it in, in geological storage. And so that can produce energy whilst being that negative. So there's these kind of land-based methods, and we also have increasingly also ocean-based methods. I'm not as expert on ocean-based methods, but it's fair to say that the, one of the main issues with ocean-based methods is the kind of like, do they actually work? Because the geophysics of the ocean and the ocean currents is extremely complicated. And, and so generally speaking, I think it's fair to say they're at an earlier stage of development. And how many of these are already in existence, or are some of these just theoretical? There was a recent report come out that suggested that about 2 billion tonnes of CO2 are being sequestered each year through human land management. And that is overwhelmingly through reforestation, through tree planting, particularly in the global north. In terms of like what we might call the novel CDR methods, so things like bioenergy with carbon capture, another one is biochar, which is treating vegetation at very high temperatures in order to, to lock up carbon in, in agricultural soils principally. The contribution is something like one one thousandth or less than the amount we're sequestering through reforestation. So a lot of these more emergent techniques do only so far exist on paper, but things are moving ahead very quickly. And so that picture is changing, but that's kind of where we are at the moment. Can you also outline for us how carbon dioxide removal has been proposed as a potential solution to some of the worst effects of climate change, including its particular role in offshoot scenarios? 
so let's just define what we mean by overshoot scenarios first, I think. So an overshoot scenario is where in 2100, you stabilise global temperatures at a given level of warming. So the Paris Agreement commits the world to keep climate change to well below two degrees and to strive towards 1.5. And the research community, for reasons that are quite controversial and in large part to do with the limits of our models, decided to interpret that as how where do global temperatures stabilise in 2100. So in a decarbonisation scenario modelling, a scenario will largely be considered Paris compliant if it stays within 1.5 or 2 degrees in 2100. So the temperature might peak at 1.8 degrees of warming, say, in 2060, before very large-scale carbon dioxide removal brings us back down to that 1.5 or 2 degree threshold. And there's several reasons that this ends up being proposed. And one of them is that um, the methods we've used to sort of project the role that carbon dioxide removal could play in global decarbonisation have quite severe limitations and only really consider the kind of technical sort of like, can we do it from an engineering point of view and the economic perspective on these on these uh, CDR methods. So we sometimes call that techno-economic assessment. So, you know, can we do it and how much does it cost? And using those methods, we end up with quite optimistic projections for CDR. In the most recent IPCC report, so that the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, is a big, like massive synthesis across the research community that's done to assess the current evidence on climate change and present that to policymakers. In the most recent report that came out last year, the headline figure for carbon dioxide removal potential from these kind of techno-economic assessments was eight gigatons. So that's eight billion tons in 2050. Just to put that in context, current global emissions are about 50 gigatons or 50 billion tons. So we're we're talking about not sh just short of about 20% of current global emissions. So this kind of very large amount of CDR is is the basis of overshoots and ice. They, they rely on it in order to make the numbers add up to keep to within that 2100 target. But there are increasing numbers of people, and, and myself included, that are, are extremely sceptical about these projections um, that are based on, on techno-economic assessments. And we think that the real-world potential, once you start factoring in other kinds of processes that affect the deliverability of carbon dioxide removal, is going to actually be substantially lower than these current projections. And that means that a lot of these overshoot scenarios probably can't be delivered in the real world, which means that, you know, once we reach a certain temperature threshold, this idea of reducing it back down again is extremely uncertain. And yet it seems many different countries around the world are relying on carbon dioxide removal to meet their climate change pledges under the Paris Agreement. Can you give us a sense of the scale of the land use change that would be required to meet these targets? One of the things that has happened with these, these sort of climate scenarios that have been projected by scenario modellers in, in academic groups across the world is it's been absolute music to policymakers' ears. Because what it seems to suggest is that you can still meet your climate commitments whilst delaying the rate of decarbonisation. doesn't take a genius to work out that that might be appealing with policymakers who are worried about how to decarbonise, how politically achievable it is and how much it's all going to cost. 
And so, yeah, there's been very widespread uptake of CDR in government policies. And one recent calculation, if you add up all of the land required to deliver these pledges in terms of particularly in terms of reforestation, in terms of bioenergy, it comes to about a billion hectares. So uh, a hectare is um, 100 metres squared. So there's 100 of those in a square kilometre. It's a kind of standard measurement in land use. So a billion hectares is about the same as the current area of global cropland. So arable farming globally is about 1.5 billion hectares. So a billion hectares is in the same kind of order of magnitude. So it's a simply vast area that will be required to deliver all of this. And there are good reasons to be extremely sceptical that that's actually achievable. Another thing that these commitments to CDR, another implication they have is that you require extremely rapid rates of land use change in order to deliver them. So a useful kind of comparison between the rates of land use required to meet government's carbon dioxide removal policies and real-world um, historical analogies is with soybeans. So soybeans are the most rapidly expanding global commodity crop in history, and their expansion was driven by kind of really massive changes in, in global economics and global geopolitics, really with the rise of China and, um, and the increased middle class in China with an increased demand for meat has led to massive expansion of soybeans, particularly in Brazil, to meet that demand. So soybeans are typically mushed up and used as pig feed. And so, so there's this big shift in kind of global agricultural trade that's had really profound impacts on the environment in Brazil. So we, we hear a lot about deforestation in the Amazon, but there's actually other biomes in Brazil, grasslands and other really precious biodiversity reserves that have been uh, converted to agricultural lands to, to meet this demand for soybeans. And the average or the median uh, amount of rate of land use change that would be required to deliver these government policies is, is three times quicker based on one calculation than the rate of expansion of soybeans. So it's wholly unprecedented in human history and throws up all kinds of questions about its feasibility and about the governance that would be required to ensure that this rate of change if it is even manageable, doesn't have all kinds of spillover effects. Is part of the challenge that each country is making their own decisions isolated from the rest of the world? Or do they each factor in what everyone else is doing? That's a really interesting question. And so in an odd way, carbon dioxide removals are one of the only bits of climate change that aren't assumed to be done on a national basis. So let me just explain what we mean by that. So since way back in the Kyoto Protocol, which was a sort of precursor to the Paris Agreement, it was established that countries were responsible for emissions that take place within their administrative boundaries. So what this means is that, you know, oftentimes the West is criticised for saying, oh, we've cut our emissions by 20% or 30% on 1990 levels. When in reality, what we've actually done is we've outsourced a lot of our emissions to developing countries who now produce a lot of the things that we buy and consume. But under the, the way the treaty's framed, we're fully entitled to do that. But that same logic, strangely, uh, doesn't apply to land-based carbon dioxide removal. And so you're allowed to make assumptions about land-based CDR that are delivered in other countries. 
so we're allowed to say, okay, we're going to protect X amount of forest in the Amazon, and that's going to be part of our national decarbonisation plan, which I think is is a is a slightly sort of strange artefact of the system, and and does lead to this this situation where we we can double count land, and that different countries can assume that um, land is going to be available in the same place to offset their particular emissions. So how feasible are the current plans, given our global population and the current ways much of the world's land is being used? What potential barriers did you identify? There's a kind of standard definition of, of feasibility assessment um, that's used quite a lot in sort of engineering contexts and hasn't yet really been systematically applied to this question of land-based carbon dioxide removal. And that's that it covers socio-cultural, institutional and environmental barriers to delivery. Um, and so let me just give some examples of, of each of those. So a really fundamental sociocultural barrier is this question of, of land tenure and food insecurity. So this gets really to the heart of how the land system is really quite different from other parts of the economy, from, from energy production and from transport and so forth. In that, you know, the land system is made up of, I think, 600 million farms on one account. So it has millions and millions of typically quite small family farms doing the production. Uh, and in, in, the, in the developing world particularly, there are huge issues about land tenure insecurity. In other words, people have different modes of ownership. So, you know, a private uh, large scale agribusiness might have kind of legal ownership, how we might think about ownership in the developed world with legal title on a piece of land. Whereas if you're a more subsistence farmer in an agricultural frontier, you might have lived in the pot of land for generations, but not have legal title to it. So you might have what's more called kind of customary ownership or traditional ownership. And these kinds of things collide and, and lead to very insecure, precarious situations for a lot of the world's farmers. And these are the people we're asking to, to rapidly change, to quite radically and rapidly change a lot of their activities, a lot of, of, of the way of life and their livelihoods and so forth. And this doesn't really account for the way in which in which this kind of land tenure and food insecurity issue constrains their ability to adapt and to change. So I think a really good example of this is, is with agroforestry, which is basically a system of farming in which you have a kind of tree layer. And then in the canopy beneath that, in the understory, you might grow a crop. So um, a lot of cocoa has been grown this way in West Africa. And it can have really good co-benefits. So it can sequester a lot of carbon in the trees. It can also improve the health of the soil and improve the, the long-term sustainability of yields of a crop. But the problem is, is it takes 5, 10, perhaps 20 years to get it established, to grow the trees. And if you don't know if you're going to be able to keep this piece of land that you, you live on in, in one year's time, let alone sort of 10 or 20, it doesn't really make sense to, to adopt this kind of scheme. And so in spite of like a large amount of money going into promoting agroforestry through NGOs and through kind of like international development organizations and the World Bank and all this kind of stuff, there's been very limited uptake because it doesn't it doesn't deal with the realities of the insecurities and the, and the pressures that a lot of, of, of small scale farmers face. So that's just kind of one example that describes what's actually going on on the ground and kind of our economic models that we use in order to like uh, make these what I described at the start as techno-economic assessments. They assume that farmers are all kind of rational acting, profit maximizing representative individuals with kind of complete information and sort of unconstrained agency. And so it can make it look like these kind of very rapid changes 
are achievable in a short period of time. But it just doesn't, it, it's treating the land system as though it's like an energy grid with five big power stations who, are, who have a lot of money and are able to sort of optimise their returns. The land system just isn't like that. And through sort of misrepresenting it in our models, we've come to these, I think, quite erroneous, misleading conclusions about, about what's possible. So let me just give you like one more example. So another way in which the land system is really different to other parts of the economy is that it's what we call a coupled human and natural system or a socio-ecological system. So that basically means that it involves complex interactions between economic production and social systems and the natural environment. So, so agriculture doesn't just depend on agricultural trade and commodity prices. It also depends on soil quality, nitrogen cycles, water, all the rest of it. And we don't really account for this in the way we think about land-based carbon dioxide removal. So already now we're seeing increased tree mortality under climate change due to drought and things like um, bark beetles, whose species range is changing under climate change. And also fire is like a really obvious one. And so what this means is that sometimes the, the carbon dioxide that we sequester in vegetation and soils isn't going to stay there permanently because these, these stresses, these natural stresses can lead to it being re-released. And this is something that's just not accounted for in the way we do economic modelling to come up with assessments of removal potentials. And like we can see this on the ground already. So in, in California, there's been quite a large uh, forestry offsets market called the, yeah, the California Forestry Offsets Market. And they, they built in a risk pool to deal with fire risk. And they said, OK, we're going we're gonna to sell 100 credits. And I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but we're going we're gonna to sell, say, 100 credits or, or whatever. And we're going to set aside 20 of those as risk to account for future fires. Well, within the first sort of 10 years of the project, that whole risk pool had already been lost due to fire. And it was supposed to last for 100 years. So it's massively under leveraged in terms of, of what's been put aside to deal with these impermanence risks. And I think that's kind of indicative of what we've got wrong so far. Your research also flags how there could be some difficult decisions and unintended consequences from trying to use land-based solutions on this proposed scale. Can you outline more about some of those? One thing we try and do is we try and draw a distinction between feasibility and desirability. So feasibility is kind of, can we do it? And desirability is, is, should we? I'm a computer modeler and I feel like really unqualified to comment on a lot of these desirability questions, which I think rightly sit in the realm of political science, philosophy, ethics, and so forth. So what we've tried to do is focus on this feasibility question. I think by focusing on this feasibility question, we can kind of like trim the beast down to size a little bit and get some more realistic numbers about what is actually possible. At the moment, the the, the current potentials are sort of like 8 billion tonnes in 2050. Say we trim that down to two or three, that could still have really profound impacts on the environment. So with something like bioenergy, with carbon capture and storage, it requires a lot of water for irrigation. It requires a lot of potentially fertilizer to make it grow. And so that can contribute to the biodiversity crisis and, and as can overconsumption of water resources. The other thing this can do is if we're taking away agricultural lands and using it to offset our emissions, this has really obvious consequences potentially for food security and particularly amongst subsistence farmers who might be uh, uh, holding their land under customary title and using it to feed their families. 
And then there is this real risk that, that a large scale carbon offset business will come in and buy up that land from the government uh, and then displace those people and then use it to offset emissions. And that could have really dire consequences for poverty and for food security. And I think it's worth saying that we're actually, I mean, that sounds like a kind of apocalyptic scenario, but we're sort of starting to see that happen. So the most recent COP, which was in the, uh, the United Arab Emirates, the kind of headline announcement from, from the organisers on the first day was what they, they bought up like large sections of sub-Saharan Africa through this organisation called Blue Carbon. And it was going to be using that land to generate carbon credits to offset emissions. And this is like problematic on any number of levels. I mean, the first thing to say is that even in what I regard as hugely over-optimistic projections of land-based carbon dioxide removal, it has always been said by the scientific community that it should be used to offset really hard to abate and residual emissions. So from stuff like steel production or perhaps agriculture, if we, if we can't get away from using nitrogen fertilisers. But what's now being done is that these are being used to offset what we might call luxury emissions. So stuff like flying around more than you need to. And that has never been what the scientific community has said on this front. But what's happening is that people are taking this seeming scientific endorsement of the principle of offsets and they're they're using it and it's now become a profit driven business with incentives that are quite different from you know the fundamental incentive of how do we decarbonize the economy over the longer term and the other question is like people are living in those bits of sub-saharan africa at the moment they're probably subsistence farmers many of them with customary title and a lot of them may be displaced through this blue carbon purchase so i think it's really 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 worrying i think it's problematic and i think that yeah so so i started my answers by saying you know we've got this difference between desirability and feasibility and one way of dealing with what we might see as feasibility issues is just by this horrible kind of top-down land purchase system that is going to have the most appalling social consequences i think what's starting to happen is is really worrying You've also highlighted some challenges around actually measuring the impact of CDR on emissions. What are these difficulties and why are they so important? If you imagine like uh, measuring emissions from a coal power station, where you burn coal and then you basically, what you need in order to figure out how much you've emitted is some kind of sensor on the top of a chimney that measures how much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are going into the atmosphere at source. It's a calculation which has some uncertainty in it, but it's relatively bounded in terms of uh, the uncertainty in terms of how much you're emitting in that case. But if you then put that to a thousand square kilometres of forest, you've got soils doing all kinds of different complicated things, different soil geochemistry over large areas. You've got really complicated carbon fluxes in the trees. You've got tree mortality, trees dying, and you've got these kind of, yeah, as, we, as I mentioned earlier, these kind of impermanence risks and so forth. It gets really, really difficult to measure how much carbon you're actually sucking out the atmosphere over such large areas. And just to, to give you an example of this, there was a, a study done not too long ago in which the carbon uptake rates that are assumed in a lot of our decarbonisation scenarios and decarbonisation policies could not be reproduced by any of our global vegetation models. And so basically they're, they're too optimistic based on what our vegetation models think is realistically going to be sequestered. 
but there's also a vast range on those things. And so once you get into the business of companies uh, producing offsets and then their revenue is about maximizing the number of offsets they can sell, well, you can see that their incentive is to bend that science as far as they can in order to, to claim the most amount of credits. And the science is really uncertain. It's really, really difficult to do it well. It requires lots of field sampling of soils. It requires like lots of flux towers measuring carbon fluxes in the field. It requires really detailed satellite measurements and, and modelling. And that scientific infrastructure doesn't exist anywhere. It's probably most advanced in the USA. But how close are we to having that for large areas of sub-Saharan Africa? We're nowhere near. And so the danger is that as long as we have these kind of private carbon markets where companies are incentivized to claim they're producing as many credits as they as they can, bending the science as, as much as they can, we're always going to have this problem of kind of overcrediting, of overclaiming. And so what that's led to is increased calls, um, particularly after the COP, actually, to view the removals as a public good. And to say, to get back to this idea about, no, we, we should be using our removals to offset those emissions that are most difficult to abate, most difficult to remove. And so, yeah, ultimately, we need to decide as a society what we think those industries are that we don't want to decarbonize. Because at the moment, what we've got is we've got offsets on the ability to pay. And farmers, who are often quite poor, quite economically marginal, don't have a lot of ability to pay. And yet their activities are some of the most important to our fundamental functioning of society and also amongst the hardest to decarbonize. So should we be getting back to this idea of the carbon dioxide removal potential as a public good that's allocated according to democratic debate and public policy rather than these private markets? But then the flip side, finally, to that is that if these are going to be seen as a public good, who's going to pay for all of it? So once you start talking about, you know, billions of tonnes of carbon dioxide removal potential, and we're talking about typically about $50 to $100 per tonne in terms of the cost of removing this stuff, well, we quite quickly develop some vast numbers. You know, trillions of dollars are going to be needed in, in order to remove this amount of carbon. And who's going to pay for that? So there's definitely this tension between getting the investment we need in order to deliver a rational and feasible amount of removals and then allocating them in a, in a rational and humanitarian and sane kind of way from, from the point of view of decarbonizing the economy. So there are no easy answers um, and it's one of the great challenges in this area. You've also carried out work on wildfires. How does this relate to CDR? So I'm a computer modeler and I'm in a sort of emerging field called human earth system modeling, which I always think sounds a bit like sort of sci-fi. But basically what it means is, is that, you know, climate change is a natural process to do with the earth system. But the way in which it impacts us will in large part depend on how we respond to it. And so what we're increasingly trying to do is we're trying to model these interactions between a changing climate and socioeconomic change and the way in which those interact and feedback into each other. So a classic and really simple example that people have just got working in models is to say, OK, the climate gets hotter, people use more air conditioning. And that means that there's increased energy consumption to, you know, to cool our homes, but there might be reduced energy consumption to heat them in the winter. So these are kind of complicated feedbacks to do with how the climate affects our behaviour and then leads to further environmental change. So um, it, these get really complicated when you're looking at agriculture in terms of water consumption, 
and the potential, you know, if you have increased drought, do farmers use more irrigation? And does that lead to a kind of race to the bottom in terms of depleting groundwater resources? So this is the kind of question that, that I'm interested in that I look to model. And we've been doing that in the first instance. My work, my PhD work was about fire, which is a really complicated and, and what we call a coupled human natural system with complicated uh, socioeconomic parts and complicated biophysical parts. And we've been trying to build the representation of, of the human part of the question into these global scale models. And in terms of carbon dioxide removal, um, fire is is perhaps the biggest risk in, in terms of impermanence. The worst case scenario, I think, is, you know, we could plant a load of trees as a potentially as a climate change solution. And then we could see catastrophic wildfires burn them all again and have all of that carbon re-released into the atmosphere. So that's the kind of question I'm interested in. And I think that, you know, a lot of people's livelihoods globally are dependent on fire. So when we think about Aboriginal people in the north of Australia, a lot of their agricultural practices, their pastoral practices, and the way in which they they live and, and work with the landscape depends on fire as a natural process with vegetation that's adapted to burn on a kind of rotational basis. And so, so you start to get these really complicated questions about how fire-dependent livelihoods and the governance of those interacts with these increasing calls for sort of top-down carbon markets. And we're starting to see real tensions between, uh, it's another sort of um, axis of conflict between kind of like local scale, often quite marginalised land users and this kind of global discourse around carbon dioxide removal in the land system. So yeah, lots of ways in which they interact. So we've heard about some of the problems and now perhaps we can turn to some potential solutions. What would you like governments, climate change experts and policymakers to do as a result of your findings? And where do things stand in light of the recent COP28 meeting? I think the honest assessment of where we are with carbon dioxide removal is that we're in a bit of a mess in that there is some potential for land-based removals. And it's vital that we use that and use it effectively in order to support decarbonisation of the economy. There's no doubt about that. But I think the way in which a lot of the academic research community has gone about assessing the potentials is fundamentally flawed. And there is a growing body of opinion that is making that case quite strongly. But those over-optimistic projections are now being doubled down on, tripled down on by private finance looking to make money out of this situation. So I think we are in a real mess. And fundamentally, what we need is a much more sober appreciation of what is actually possible about what the real trade-offs are. And instead of modelling purely from a technical and economic perspective, we need to start quantifying and thinking through these wider environmental and sociocultural and kind of like governance issues and building that into the quantifications that we present to policymakers in terms of what's possible because all of this stuff feeds through downstream and and leads to a kind of scientific or perhaps sort of bending the scientific justification to to give you the kind of blue carbon scenario the research community needs to to provide better advice to policymakers that's the first thing we need to get our own house in order the second thing is, yeah, is governments and companies, unfortunately, are going to have to be much more realistic about what they can offset and what they're going to need to decarbonise. And so that's a tough message. But I think one of the things we are now starting to see is the emergence of CDR litigation. 
so carbon dioxide removal, I think, is definitely the next frontier in environmental litigation. So we, we've started to see this where governments have um, decarbonisation plans. And there was a, a famous case against Shell who didn't have a climate change plan and were sued to say, well, the, the Netherlands has a net zero target and you're headquartered in the Netherlands, so you need to have a net zero target. But the issue is that what companies can then do is just say, oh, well, we'll just carry on as well and we'll just plant trees. So CDR litigation then is to saying it needs to then come in and say, look, this isn't a credible decarbonisation plan. This is based on over-reliance on carbon dioxide removal. And so where that is happening, I think that there needs to be a collaboration between the environmental litigation community and, and kind of academic land system science to point out where these plans don't represent a credible delivery plan for net zero. And I think that all of this overly optimistic and, and frankly, kind of profit-driven, like sort of slightly spurious interpretation of, of, of carbon removals as a climate solution, I think is, is removing or reducing our potential to actually deliver carbon removals. And what about us as individuals? Do we need to be more sceptical about offsetting? And what would be a better approach? There was a time when uh, companies would would talk about these kind of like nature restoration efforts and the public would go, oh, that's great. And it would be an effective form of environmental advertising if you want to be kind or greenwashing if you don't. And I think that that is changing and that, you know, the reaction to the Blue Carbon Initiative, I don't think was what the UAE had hoped. I think it was quite sceptical. And I think that's really positive because it, it means that the, the things that companies need to do in order to convince the public that they care about climate change are actually going to help deal with climate change rather than just kind of like gain public approval without actually reducing emissions. So I think that that is being sceptical, being a kind of sceptical consumer and citizen and an observer of, of what companies are up to, I think is kind of a positive thing. And, and I would just say this, I would just say, look, like when you are you're offered offset schemes, I think now basically every time you fly. And I'm not saying don't offset if you are going to fly. I'm saying these schemes are extremely problematic and your offset in no way truly accounts for the carbon you're emitting through flying. So offset if you are going to fly, but the, the, the solution here is to fly less and to not rely on offset schemes. So what about your thoughts for the future? Do you feel at all optimistic that we're starting to move in the right direction? In the next four or five years, we're going to put some proper numbers on what can actually be delivered for carbon removals. And once we've done that, I think that all of this stuff is based on the assumption that it's scientifically credible. And every time you see a presentation from one of these gazillions of startups out there talking about how they're going to deliver this or that carbon removal scheme, and they all start by saying the IPCC says we need 10 billion gigatons of removals or scientists say we need it. And if scientists stop saying that and start saying something that's more, more robust, then a lot of the crazier, more problematic developments, I think, will kind of run out of road because ultimately companies are only going to buy offsets if it actually contributes to their decarbonisation in the eyes of governments and the public. They're not going to do it if those offsets are not regarded as credible or a viable thing, because they're only decarbonizing ultimately, in many cases, for the public perception or the public demand that they do so. And so if we can get this back in order 
and remove some of the kind of overhype and sort of mutated versions of this, I think we can get the house back in order and get get things back in line a bit. You know, it's a bit like with with machine learning or AI, we see an initial massive kind of hype. And then we see a sort of disappointment as we realise that actually there's all kinds of barriers to overcome until this this technology really delivers on its promise. I think we're sort of slightly in that space at the moment where the research community is massively rowing back on the advice it was giving 10 or 15 years ago on this stuff. But there's a huge amount of capital that's now being invested on this basis and there's a system set up on this basis. So it will take time for that to sort of write itself. But, you know, once we remove that sort of veneer of, of scientific credibility, I think things will start to change. And so what's your next area of focus for your research? I'm a modeler, so surprise, surprise, I'm going to do more modeling. Our recent paper on this sets out what the research community needs to do in the next five to 10 years to get these more credible assessments of CDR potential out there, widely circulated and kind of widely agreed on. So we're going to be working on that. It comes back to this human system modeling idea. So typically what that involves is, is a kind of granular model of like farmers, land management and behavior, a kind of model of, of vegetation, of the carbon cycle, of the water cycle and all of that. And then a kind of a, a model of agricultural trade of some kind that, that represents you know, economic signals and the way in which governments and farmers respond to those. And once we get that all kind of synchronised and working nicely together, we can start to really think about how much is credible. What's a realistic rate of land use change uh, for delivery of carbon dioxide removal? So I think that that's a kind of five to 10 year project and, and I'm going to be working on that in different ways. And so an immediate thing we're going to be looking at is kind of fire and carbon markets. And can we model both kind of what happens if you set up a load of forestry carbon markets and you don't think about fire and how much of them ends up burning? And what do they actually look like if you do think about fire and you actually build that into your calculations and how different does that look? So that's, yeah, that's big picture what I'm working on. And then in the, in the next couple of years, specifically this fire and carbon markets issue. Oh, it's been great talking to you today and hearing about why we need to be more cautious and even sceptical about some of the claims that are being made around the promises of carbon dioxide removal, at least until you and others have had time to do more research in this complex area. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we look forward to seeing where your research takes us in the future. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series.